And so this morning we're, we're going to do what I said we weren't going to do. We're going to have a, a little topical sort of message uh, on the new year. <laughs> what are we going to do for the new year? And, and um, I'm going to try to stay just in the book of John. Hopefully you saw the, uh, the, the email or the, the post on Facebook. And I asked you to read through the, the book of 1 John. Sorry, I think I said John. 1 John. Um, and there's a lot that we could discuss in the book of 1 John, um, but I'm going to kind of, I'm going to start in chapter 3, so if you'd like to go ahead and turn there, 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start in chapter 3, and we're going to bounce around a little bit as we look at some of these points this morning, but before we get started, let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, and even when we do make plans, even when we have a schedule, a time frame, uh, ways that we want to do things, even ways that we believe you want us to do things, um, you're in control and you have the ability to, to change our plans. You have the right to change our plans, and we, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we look at this passage in First John. I pray that you would open our hearts to what we need to change. And I pray that you would help us to perhaps even see something that either we've not seen before or something that we've forgotten or something that we're simply just not obeying. I pray that you would be glorified as we gather this morning, as we hear from your word. I pray that we would hear from you, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. How many of you like to measure things? Um, you're, you're a fan of rulers. Uh, yardsticks, you know, it, when, you, when you go, we, we've been doing a lot of house hunting, just kind of a, a quick update, we, we are walking away from the house that we thought was going to be the one due to some mold issues, so I won't spend a lot of time on that. Uh, if you want more details, feel free to come by and listen to our sob story. Um, but uh, so, uh, so one of the things that, that, you know, we did when we went during the inspection is we went and measured something because we wanted to make sure, you know, uh, that the rooms were exactly what we thought they were going to be. We were going to be able to put things in them that we wanted to, especially like the laundry room area, make sure the washer dryer would, would fit or what size we could fit in there. Uh, lots of things that, that we measure. And we, we measure things all the time. Uh, you know, we measure things for work probably, um, you know, especially I think of um, Ellen as a nurse. She probably measures things daily. <laughs> um, but do you use the metric system? Because that's no fun. Yeah, unfortunately. All right. So she stuck with the metric system. But, uh, but we like to measure things. And one of the things that we like to measure is, is growth. We like to measure as we're kids. We like to know that we're growing. A lot of times parents will have that one doorway in the house, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know where I'm going? Where, where the kids stand and you take a ruler or something and you, you push down the hair, which I don't have much anymore. And you push down the hair, you know, so they, they don't get any extra height and then you take a pencil and you mark on the doorpost where they are and you put their initials or their name or something in the year. Then every year you can see how that child has grown. We like, we like to measure those things. We like to be able to look back and see that progress has been made. Uh, we do the same thing in work. We like to look back and say, okay, are we still working on the same project? Did we, how many projects did we finish this year? You know, what's going on? Why didn't we finish the project? You know, and, and that gives us some time to, to reflect and figure out maybe things that we did wrong, things that we did well. Um, and so measuring is, is a good thing. And I, I remember um, growing up, going to the doctor's office, and you know, you always, they always tell you to go and, and, and get on the scale, right? And so you'd go and you'd get on the scale, and you know, you're, you're, always, you're, you're nervous. Even as a kid, I don't know why, I was just nervous to stand on the scale. I was a skinny kid, you know. I just, it was just weird, you know. I don't want to be measured necessarily as far as that was concerned. So you get on the scale. But it wasn't just the weight. They'd also pull out this stick, right? And they had the little flap thing, and then it knocked down on your head. And then they tell you you were shorter than you thought you were, you know. And that was always annoying because I'm five foot ten. Nope, you're five foot nine and a half. That's it. That's all, that's all the further you're going. But, but we like to measure things. We like to know how far we've come. And, uh, and whether it's a doctor's office, whether it's for work, whether, whether it's stepping on the scale at the beginning of the year and going, oh, man, 
I got a long ways to go. <laughs> Whatever your measurement is, um, your favorite measurement is, you know, we like to measure stuff. It tells us where we've been and it tells us how far we've come. The hard thing is when it comes to spiritual things, oftentimes it's kind of hard for us to, to really measure where we're at spiritually. Uh, because, you know, we want to, we want to understand that uh, we live by faith in the grace of God. And, uh, and so we, we don't want to lean too much on, excuse me, on the activities, you know. I went out and I went knocking on doors every week this year, you know. So I'm more spiritual than I was last year. You know, that's, that's not necessarily the case. You could be knocking on doors with the worst attitude in the world or be doing it with the wrong motives, right? So, so it's hard for us sometimes to, to have a measuring stick for, um, for spirituality. Not only is it hard to have a measuring stick, but sometimes it's, it's hard to have motivation, is it not? Because how often have you started off the beginning of the year with these ideas of, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be like this, and I'm going to grow in this spiritually, and you get to the, you know, the second week or the first day, <laughs> and, and you failed, like Andy was talking about. You've already fallen on your face, and you just decide, you know what, maybe, maybe my goal's too high. I just, I can't do it. I can't do this, and you give up. And you need, you need some more motivation. I, I know... Uh, one of, the, one of the great things about um, exercise coaches is they provide motivation, right? Those, those big dudes that are standing over you yelling in your face, I, I don't know. I've never had one. So uh, I'll have to, Justin, you, know, you have coaches yell at you when you're exercising sometimes, all right? You know, they're motivated. He, he's the one that yells. That's the difference. He's the yeller, all right? So they're, they're, they're motivating you. They're trying to give you a reason to keep going forward, even if that reason is to get them to be quiet. You know, there's a reason they're trying to motivate you to do, to reach out, to, to press toward that goal. And our goal, obviously, we may have lots of goals uh, physically, but we have spiritual goals as well. And we have one basic spiritual goal. What is that? To become like Christ, right? To become like Christ. And so as we come to John, 1 John chapter 3, um, we're going to read the first just four verses to get started here. But as I come to this passage, there, there's a lot of things that we could talk about in 1 John. Um, but as we come to this passage, the first thing I see in, in 1 John chapter 3 are three motivations that God gives to us to spur us on, to give us a reason, to give us a hope so that we can grow to become more like Christ this year. As you're thinking about all the, the resolutions that, you, that you're making. Now, nothing I say this morning is going to be something that you haven't heard, something that you haven't read, but hopefully it's a, at least a reminder. It's a, it's a time for you to take a pause and evaluate last year and say, how did I do in these three things last year? And we'll get to those in a minute. But first, I want to look at the three motivations that he gives us here in 1 John chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. All right, what's the first motivation? Anybody want to guess? The motivation to become like Christ, yes. Uh, to know, to know him. Okay, that's not the motivation here. What does it say? You, got, you have to yell, because I'm really loud. Right, because we are What? We are children of God. Think about what it says there. Think about John writing this. He's, he's already written two chapters of information, and, and he's talking to whom? He's talking to the church, right? And he says, see, look, look at this, pay attention. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Think about that. We've just come through Christmas, right? We just came through Christmas where we reflected on not only the birth of Christ, but we reflected on the death of Christ. What kind of love the Father has shown to us that we would be called children of God? Think about that. What kind of a love that God would not only rescue his creation, but he would rescue his creation who didn't want anything to do with him. That he would seek after the rebel, that he would seek after the enemy, that he would come, that he would sacrifice himself 
to die for those who couldn't care less. What kind of love is that? And so the first motivation that John gives us this morning to spur us on to pursue Christ-likeness is the fact that God has done an amazing thing in making us his children. What kind of love God has done. It's because we are God's children because of God's amazing love. But the second motivation is in verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What's it saying? Okay, he says, isn't it amazing the love that God has that he has made us as children? And, and it's great because even now, even right here on earth, we are his children. This isn't something that we have to hope for in the future that maybe, maybe God will make us his child. No, if you have believed in Jesus Christ here and now, in this moment, you are a child of God. Isn't that amazing? But not only that, are here and now are you a child of God, but what does he say? What does he say? Go back there. He says, uh, sorry. I lost my place. <laughs> Children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What's he saying? We're going to be different, right? He says now, right now, we're children of God in this, in this flesh-ridden world, in our sinfulness, in our weakness. We are still the children of God because of his love and his grace. We are the children of God, but yet we're going to be something better. It's not here yet. But we're going to be something better. There is a hope that we will be changed, how? Has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, who's that? Christ, when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is coming a day when we will be like Christ. Isn't that an amazing hope? Not only have we been given the opportunity to be children of God, but he is going to someday make us like Christ. Pure, perfect, holy. There's coming a day when that will happen, when Christ returns. When we see him, we will be like him. So the second motivation is that presently we are his, though we are not yet what we should be or will be when he returns. There's hope. There's hope. Yes, there's hope in the fact that God has lovingly made us his children, but there's hope also in the fact that we're not going to stay like this forever. We are going to be changed. Third motivation found in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me read that again. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What's the motivation here? We understand that we are the children of God because of the grace of God, because of the love of God. We understand that we are going to be changed to be like Christ. We have hope that everything that we struggle with now will be no more. We have a hope that we look forward to. And then it says, but, <clears throat> but here's the third motivation. If you hope in that, those who hope in that, purify themselves as he is pure. Here's the motivation. The one that we are waiting for is pure. And it is our duty to become more and more pure until the day he comes. Because if we hope in that fact that we will one day be like him, even now we will be working and striving to become like him now. Will we ever make it? No. No, we still have the flesh, but that's our drive. That's our desire. That's our goal. That's, that's what we should be attempting to do here in 2020. It's what we hopefully were attempting to do last year in, in 2019. 
But as we go into this new year, God's given us these motivations so that we know we're going to be like Christ. But he says, if, if you hope in that, you should be purifying yourself to be like him because he is pure. <clears throat> so how can we grow this coming year in a way that we can look back and see areas of change spiritually? Obviously, spiritual growth is not something that we can manufacture. I can't just, uh, I can't just you know, reach into my heart and be like, I am more loving. I have more joy. You, know, you, you can't do that, right? We have no way of, 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 of just you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstrap. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to do within us. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's not something that we can manufacture. I can't just become more loving, more joyful, more patient, it's something that I become the more I yield myself to the Spirit. Our submission to the work of the Spirit is vital to see the fruit of the Spirit manifested in us more and more each day. But as we look at the rest of this passage, and, and as we'll go to other passages here in 1 John, uh, we, I see three activities, three activities um, in this passage, and also sprinkled throughout, um, that point us to tangible ways that we can strive for spiritual growth. Real ways, things that we can, we can grab onto, that ways that we can strive for spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth is not merely passive. We don't just sit in the chair and say, all right, God, make me like Christ. That's not how it works, right? We just, we just talked about that. We're, it, it takes effort, it takes action, it takes obedience, it takes submission to the Holy Spirit as he guides and directs and convicts us. And so there's three activities or walks that I've put down here. You know me, I got to literate everything. So I've got three walks for us this morning from this passage. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 4 through 10 of 1 John chapter 3. It says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also, makes a, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Excuse me. You know that he appeared to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's, deeds, God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born by God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to get through that. We're going to break it down here in a minute. <clears throat> but the first thing that I see, not only in this passage, but also uh, sprinkled throughout this book, the first walk that we can walk in 2020, the first way that we can look back and see, how did I do? In, in, in some area of spirituality, something that we can look back and have a tangible thing to look at is walk in repentance. Walk in repentance. Say, what in the world does that mean? Are we, are we talking about, you know, penance? You, know, you think about, I don't, I don't know if you remember from your history books, uh, I went to a Christian school, so we had a lot of Christianity mixed in with uh, you know, the, the history and, the, and science and things like that, which was good. It's good to have a Christian worldview of that. So I don't know how deep everybody's uh, understanding of the medieval times and the, the Catholic Church. You think back to the time of, of Martin Luther when he, na when he nailed his uh, 95 theses to the, wall, to the door of the church, right? Well, he had some problems with the church. One of them was penance, Right? And, and, and one of the common things you would see with penance is, is people walking from one place to another, a certain distance or, or perhaps upstairs, 
in a certain posture. Anybody know? On their knees, right? Now, you know, I've, I've been, you know, getting a little bit healthier, um, but even, even now I have no desire to walk on my knees. It hurts. It hurts. I'm 38 years old. My knees are not young anymore. Um, and it hurts to walk on my knees. I'm not even going to give you an example. All right. All right. But these people uh, would be told, you know, you need to say a certain number of Hail Marys or prayers, or you, and you need to, need to walk a certain distance on your knees, or you need to climb the stairs a certain number of times on your knees. You know, is that the, is that the kind of walking in repentance that I'm talking about? No, that's, that's, that's not in Scripture. <laughs> All right, that's not the type of repentant walking that I, that I mean. Uh, walking in repentance is, is also not just constantly saying, I'm sorry. Right? Does anybody know anybody like that? It's like, it's like everything that happens, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's, they're like an, a constant, um, I'm sorry machine, you know? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about every, everywhere you go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Every time something happens, I'm sorry. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. We're, we're, not, we're not doing penance. We're not walking around being an I'm sorry machine. So what, what is this walking in repentance? It's walking with an attitude that is aware of our sin. Walking with an attitude of awareness of our sin and a desire to get rid of it. That's what walking in repentance looks like. I don't know about you, but often the hardest part about dealing with sin for me is simply recognizing that it's there. Because we're very good at lying to ourselves, are we not? Simply recognizing our sinful tendencies. Take a look back at chapter 1. We'll kind of pick up where, where Andy left off. Starting in verse 5, 1 John chapter 1, starting verse 5 through 8, and then we'll skip 9 to 10. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Have you ever told yourself, it's not that bad, it's no big deal? What did that say? Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The first part of walking in repentance is simply recognizing our sinful tendencies. Simply recognizing the areas that we fail. Not long ago, uh, it's kind of getting to be long ago now, um, we went through a book together in our life groups called um, Acceptable sins, right? Acceptable sins. Those little things that, that all of us do all the time and, and they become acceptable, right? And I don't know how many of you were here at the time we went through that, but I, I know pretty much all of them hit the nail on the head <laughs> with, with me. You know, most of them did. You know, just things that, that we accept that it's, it's not really that bad. It's okay. And what did, what did this verse say? It says we're lying to ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves if we say, I'm good. If we say, no, I have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. The first part of walking in repentance is being willing to say, I am sinning. What I did was wrong. That thing that I keep going back to, it's not just a bad habit. It's not just a, 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 an addiction. It's wrong. It's sin. It's an affront to God. It's like AA meetings, right? The 12 steps. What's the first thing? Admit you have a problem, right? If we're going to walk in repentance, we have to admit that we have a problem. 
If we're going to walk in repentance, we have to be willing to accept the fact and believe the fact that we are sinners. And not just this general term of, yeah, I'm a sinner. I do things that are wrong. Thankfully, God's gracious. No, name the sin. Because every one of us in here has at least one thing that we can point to, that we go back to time after time after time. And maybe it's gotten so common with us that it's just a part of our life. And we think either that either we don't have any way of getting rid of it, or maybe it's just not so bad. And we've deceived ourselves. And these verses say the truth is not in us. Walking in repentance requires that we recognize our sinful tendencies. But the great part about walking in repentance is that it means what we, we repent. Right? What does verse 9 say? We all know it by heart. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're willing to admit, this is something I struggle with. This is something I've done wrong. I'm aware of it. I understand my sinful tendencies. I understand the things that, that I do wrong. Even the one-off things that I just, I have a bad attitude or I say something mean or I just uh, am, am growing bitter or whatever it is, I can repent. And again, it's not just an I'm sorry machine. Sorry, God did it again. Sorry, God did it again. The word repent means to turn away from. If we are really desiring to turn away from that sin and turn back to Christ and say, I don't want to live like this. I want to live like you. Repentance. If we're willing to do that, then he is faithful and just to forgive us. But how often do we really go through that process? How often do we really get down on our knees before a holy God and say, I am a man of unclean lips. As Isaiah did in Isaiah 6. How often do we really see God as holy? How often do we really see our sin as wicked, as abominable? Do we? If we're walking in repentance, then we'll be able to look back on 2020 and say, I spent a lot more time on my knees repenting to God for my sin because I recognized my sinful tendencies and I repented. But the third part of walking in repentance is that we'll guard ourselves against the temptation. We'll guard ourselves against the temptation. Jump down to chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's giving us a warning here. Watch out. Watch out. Don't fall into this love with the world. Watch out. There are things that it's trying to do to attract you. What are they? The lust of the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and possessions. These are the ways that the world attempts to drag you in, that the world and your flesh attempts to get you to sin against God. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. I know Eric posts often uh, articles and things like that in our, in our church Facebook group um, regarding children and, and mobile devices, internet accessing devices. You know, why would we, why would we worry about that? Why would we, why would we, you know, buy some product? Is it just so that we can pay more money to some person who came up with a good idea to scam us? No. It's because we want to protect our children from the wickedness of the world. Now, I'm not saying we create a bubble and we never let them interact with the world, but there are some things they should never interact with in the world. And so we guard them and we protect them. 
And we do that with our kids, but do we do that with ourselves? And I'm not just talking about pornography, I'm talking about all sins. Do we set up a guard? Do we take the time to evaluate what, what are my sin tendencies? God, please forgive me, I don't want that. But then we do, do we just let it, you know, <laughs> let what happens happen? Or do we set up a guard? Do we find a way to keep ourselves from sinning? Or do we make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof? That's a command in Scripture not to do that. We are to not make provision for the flesh so that we'll fulfill it. That's part of walking in repentance. So the first way that we can look back on 2020 and see tangible growth spiritually is we can look back and see how often was I walking in repentance. Second walk. Walking in obedience. Walking in obedience. Again, these are, these are nothing new. I didn't come up with some uh, fantastic thing, you know, in, in the middle of a book that no one ever reads. Walking in obedience. <clears throat> you ever known any lazy parents? I didn't ask if you were a lazy parent. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we're all lazy parents. All right? maybe lazy bosses, you know. Whenever you interact with somebody that's beneath you uh, in some sort of hierarchy, right, it's easy to become lazy at times. I, I, I think of, of lazy parents. <clears throat> I won't name them, obviously. But have you, ever, have you ever seen this scenario where a parent says something to a child and the child is either having an attitude problem or they're just disobeying or uh, they're, they're just doing something wrong. And the parent says something like, I want you to sit down right here. And the child, you know, first of all, doesn't want to do it. And they say it again, sit down right here, right here next to me. And then the child comes over and sits down two seats away. And what does a lazy parent do? goes back to what they're doing, right? Did the child obey? No. Children, did the child obey? Negative. Uh-huh, no. The child did not obey. I said sit here, they sat there, right? That's lazy parenting. Good thing nobody's sitting up here, I just spat on the seat. Yeah, that's lazy parenting. Guess what? God is not a lazy parent. God is not a lazy parent. He requires complete obedience. He requires that child to not sit two, two chairs down, but rather to come right there. Not three times later either. He requires it to come immediately and sit down in that specific chair that was told. God is not a lazy parent. And even though we fail at parenting many times or or. or you know, holding others accountable underneath us, whether it be at work or um, in, in children's church, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, sometimes we can kind of give in and not require full obedience. God is not like that. He requires 100% obedience. And that's why our second walk is to walk in obedience. It's interesting. Obedience is the true fruit of knowing God. Did you know that? Obedience is the true fruit of knowing God. Jump up in chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Let me read that verse again. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Obedience is the first or the true fruit of knowing God. 
You know, I can spend day after day after day studying the Word of God. I can spend hours and hours reading through commentaries and, and, and digging into the original languages and pulling all this information out. And I can know anything that we could possibly understand about God and not really know God. Not really know Him. I can know a, a lot of things about Him, but that doesn't mean I know Him. True knowledge of God means that we don't just know Him up here. It means that we obey Him. We take the things that He has said in His Word and we do it. Let me ask you this question. This is a question that I've been asking myself a lot recently. <clears throat> How seriously do you take the commandments in Scripture? How seriously, when you read the Word of God, do you take the commandments? Are they just suggestions to you? Are they just nice things to have? Hey, look, if you want to be like Christ, if you, want to put, if you really want to put in the effort and be a good Christian, do these things. Are they optional to you? Or do you see the commands in Scripture? Even, you know, you, you can say, well, the, the, the law, right? The law is no more because we're under grace, brother. Amen? We're under grace. Okay, I'll give you that. But guess what? There's a bunch of commands in the New Testament too for those who are under grace. But do you think of them as commands? What's a command? If you're in the military and someone gives you a command, can you just be like, nah, not right now. Nah, not today. I don't, I don't feel like that's a good use of my time. You know? No, you can't do that. It's a command. You're, you're under that person's leadership. You have to do what they say. Otherwise, there are repercussions, right? You're going to get more work to do or you're going to be punished in some other way, uh, potentially even jailed, depending on <laughs> how seriously they take it. You know, again, God is not a lazy parent. He requires full obedience, even especially of his children. That motivation way back at the beginning of, of chapter 3. We are his children, and he requires us to obey his commandments. Three simple ones. There's many of them in, in the New Testament. Three simple ones that automatically come to our minds, probably, when we think about God's commandments. They have to do with the home, do they not? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Men, do we see that as a command? Or simply as, well, if I'm really good one day, I might live like that. It's a command. It's an imperative. Do this. And if you're not doing it, go back to walking in repentance. Go back to the first one. Because this is a command. How seriously do you take the commands? Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do you see that as a command? Do you see the commands in Scripture as if I don't do this, I have broken my relationship with a holy God? Is that how you see it? You will if you're walking in repentance. But most of the time, we're not walking in repentance, are we? We're not willing to see even these things, these clear commands of Scripture, and our failure to obey them as sin. As you go into 2020, ask yourself, when I'm reading Scripture, when I'm coming to these commands, am I willing to obey it? Am I really willing to do, or at least strive to do, what this command says? So often, we're simply not. We're simply not. Obedience is the true fruit of knowing God. Obedience not only is the true fruit of knowing God, but it verifies our belief in Christ. 
It verifies our belief in Christ. Back to chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Would that say? By this we may know that we are in him, colon. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Obedience to Christ verifies that we are his. Did you ever think about that? If I'm obeying, that's verification that I am his. Now, does that mean that everybody who does good things is is a child of God? No. But if we are a child of God, it should motivate us to obey the things that he has commanded. That's what we're supposed to teach, right? We're supposed to teach all that he commanded in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, what does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have suggested. Right? No. All that I have commanded. See, we like, we like the idea of grace. And it's a great idea. And it's a great thing. Because without grace, there's no way we could even try to be obedient. But we have responsibility too. We have to obey the commands that God has given us. And our obedience verifies our belief in God. But not only that, but our obedience proves our love for him. Our obedience proves our love for him. Turn to chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we, what? Keep his commandments. And here's the great thing. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is he saying? If you want to prove that you love God, obey his commandments. What did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is proof that we love God. It's proof that every time when we come in here and we sing these songs to God and we pray to God and we even talk about God and we, and we say, God, I love you, Lord. You're amazing to me. And we, and we give all this adoration and praise. That's awesome. But the reality is that if we're not obeying him, we don't really love him. We just love the idea of him. We love the idea of praising and worshiping this God. And we have the, love the idea of being his child, but we don't really love him if we don't obey him. This is how we know that we love God if we're walking in obedience. The last walk this morning. We must walk in repentance. We must walk in obedience. But thirdly, we need to walk in love. Walk in love. First of all, we need to walk in love. What, does that, what do I mean by that? I mean loving the body of Christ. As you read through the book of 1 John, you're going to see this over and over and over again. In fact, there's two statements that he says um, that we need to be doing. One is obeying God, and the second is loving the brother. This is a huge issue to John in this book. I hope, I hope you took the time. If you didn't take the time to read 1 John, go back home and read it. It's going to take you 30 minutes or less. All right, it's a short book. But you're going to notice in there over and over, time and time and time again, he's going to talk about loving your brothers, loving the body of Christ. And that's something that we can look back on at the end of this year. Did I walk in love toward the body of Christ? Loving the body of Christ actually is a command. Did you know that? 
Loving the body of Christ is a command. We just talked about the fact that if we're going to walk in obedience, that means obeying the commands. In this, this third walk, walking in love is a command. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 4. And this commandment we have from him. From whom? From Jesus. Whoever loves God must what? Also love his brother. It's a command. He's not talking about your physical brother. He's talking about your spiritual brother, your brother in Christ. Love is a command. Loving the body is a command. Loving the body also confirms our salvation. Just like obedience, well, it makes sense, right? Because love is a command. Loving the body of Christ is a command. So obeying that and doing that would also confirm our salvation. But, but not just in that, in that context, but look at uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. We didn't read this far earlier. 11 through 15, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should what? Love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was, like, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that this world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Did you catch that? We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Love the body of Christ. Loving the body is a command. It's a confirmation of our salvation, but... Thirdly, loving the body requires action. This isn't just coming in on Sunday morning and being like, ah, oh, I just love these guys. I love you and I love you and you. I'm working on loving you. you know, that's, not, that's, that's, not what, that's not what it is, right? Loving the body requires action. Same chapter, verse three, or chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. How? that he laid down his life for us. All right, so there's our example, right? What does love look like? He, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And it goes into more detail. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but how? In deed and in truth. Loving the body is not just in word and in talk. It's in action. It's relating to one another in a way that produces action. And one of the, one of the questions that, that you may get to in your time together is how do we do that? I'm not going to tell you. You figure it out. Loving in action. So as you get to the end of 2020, three tangible things that you can look back on. Did I walk in repentance? Was I continually noticing the things that I have done to sin against a holy God? And was I repenting of them? Was I seeking to change? Was I guarding myself? When I found those areas, did I, did I create guards against them? Did I walk in obedience? When I came across things in Scripture, did I seek to obey, seek to follow it, or did I just skip over it because it's too hard, because I don't like that? Did I walk in love? Not just did I, did I say nice things to people, but did I live in 2020 in a way that the actions that I did benefited the body of Christ, benefited those in need? Did I walk in love? Three tangible ways that John gives us this morning. Here's a lot. There's a lot in 1 John that, that you could talk about. A lot of these things, we mentioned a couple of them, are proofs of salvation. John talks a lot about those who are in God and who are not in God. And these aren't the only proofs that he gives. But these are three ways that we 
can examine ourselves. We can measure ourselves. We can stand on that scale and we can pull up that measuring stick and we can take a look at the end of 2020 and we can say, did I grow spiritually? Did I grow spiritually because I'm a child of God, because of his love and his grace? And because of that, I'm going to be like Christ someday, but am I striving, am I purifying myself now to be like him as much as I can be now? Did I grow in these three areas? Did I walk in repentance? Did I walk in obedience? And did I walk in love? Father, we thank you that we have the perfect example of all of these, except repentance, of course, because as we read even earlier, in him is no sin. Jesus Christ, our perfect example of a sinless life, our perfect example of one who walked in, in absolute obedience to the Father, both to the law that he had created, which he gave to, to draw us to you. Perfect obedience, but even to the things that, that the law didn't cover. He was absolutely perfect. He was perfect in love. Loving not just to those who loved him back, but to those who didn't. Loving to those who were his own. Giving of himself over and over and over to the point of exhaustion. He's our perfect example, Lord. And I pray that as we enter into this new year, that we would not just create things that we can check off a list to make us feel better about ourselves, but that we, that we will determine to walk in a way that pleases you, that we would walk in repentance, that we would walk in obedience and love. But even through all that, Lord, let us not do it because we want the pat on the back. Let us not do it so that we feel better about ourselves, but let us do it simply because you desire that for us. That's what you saved us for. Ephesians tells us that you saved us for good works, which you ordained before Christ even came. You have a purpose for us. Help us to fulfill it better this year as we seek to become more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.